Resting Witch Face, your one-stop haunt for all things spooky, bitchy, and more. I'm Bailey Bennett. I'm Grant Jacoby. We didn't plan anything. Just no, I don't mean today. who cares. Um, you are here because you love comedy and you love horror yeah. and you love when the two intersect. Mm-hmm. Um, they don't often, but here at Resting Witch Face, they do every day. Well, yeah, we just force them right together, and, yeah. and when it feels wrong, is when it really feels right. For yeah, us. it's like. I feel like it's like if you took like a like peanut butter and jelly, mm-hmm. but like also like put some potato chips in there. Yeah, this sounds good so yeah, far. Yeah, no, no, I know. This is okay. Good. I don't know. <laughs> I was thinking like that's like kind of like the weird, like weird, like I don't know. If oh yeah, it's the, good. the first person that put, put peanut butter and jelly together, yeah. and people yeah, 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 were like, exactly. "What the fuck are you doing?" And, and he was like, like "No, just probably wait. she. Probably she. I mean, it she was, was probably a mom. Of course, her child was like, "I'm so fucking sick of peanut butter sandwiches and jelly sandwiches separately," and she was like, "Holy shit." Here we go. Here we go. I'm starting a fucking revolution. I did the most disgusting thing at work the other day because we have a kitchen where there's like snacks that you can just take. And we have like these like, (laughs) well, there's like these big rice cakes and I just really wanted a yummy snack and there's Mm -hmm. peanut butter and there's jelly. So I just put it on top of a rice cake. Yeah. But then like, I'd never really looked at like peanut butter and jelly swirled together before without a top. So Uh. I was just walking around with this like loose rice cake that was just like covered in goo and i was like trying to eat it at my desk discreetly without people seeing me and i just Mm -hmm. looked up and my manager was just like staring at me being like what you doing over there and i was like just enjoying my revolutionary snack i growing up my mother her go-to snack was rice cakes with Mm. peanut butter on them good but like you might as well just eat a spoonful of peanut butter because the rice cake is Mm. no it's not it's true it's basically air um anyway any to get into some spooky shit i have the briefest of brief hey that scared the shit out of me from a friend a a very supportive listener my friend michelle who always offers so much feedback and constructive criticism about our podcast yes um but she texted me the other day it's very it really is very brief but she said so i had a hey that scared the shit out of me the other day that i forgot to tell you I was riding the subway on the local track, a girl after our own hearts, already talking about public transportation. Mm -hmm. Um, But we're not even at our complaint section yet. I know. She says, I was riding the subway on the local track, and there was an empty out-of-service subway making its way on the middle express track. So for people who don't know, like, obviously when there's a car car out of service, but they need to transport it from one station to another, or an entire train, not just a car, um, you'll just see them kind of, like, going by. Um, she says, you know, when two subways are going next to each other at similar speeds and for a hot second, you can look in the windows of the other car because you're in motion together. I hate, I hate when that Mm -hmm. happens. She said, well, I was looking out and I saw empty car after empty car. And then I'm pretty sure I saw a man standing, (gasps) just staring out the window in the dark subway train. And then it passed. Uh, That's it. (laughs) That I fucking hate that. There are certain there are certain stations in New York as well where it's like part of the station is in service, but then there's like one or two tracks on the Mm -hmm. side that are out of service. So it's like there's no lights on over there. There's never any activity. It's just like only ghost trains obviously go through Mm -hmm. there, and that's like where you know when a ghost needs to travel. Yeah, they they take the out of service exactly. I have very, this happened to me numerous times, but um, up where I kind of used to live in Harlem, there was this point where if you were on the express track and the, and the local track is next to you and they're kind of running concurrent, um, like if you happen to be going at the same time, the express, but then the express track goes like deeper, like underground. So at a certain point, like you're, you're in line with this, um, other trains you already have that kind of like weird like uh moment and then suddenly your train like drops yeah and the other train keeps going so it's like this feeling of like vertigo and like it's just like such a weird sensation when you're like oh there it goes <laughs> it's like bye bye <laughs> um yeah so i loved i loved that little moment so thank you michelle yeah 
Uh, I know you have kind of a long story this week, so do we want to get right into our bitches? Yeah, I, I hope it's long enough. Okay. Well, now maybe it's not going to live up to expectations and you yeah. guys can all ex- complain to And you can like love this 25-minute episode. But um, If you hear any stray sounds this week again it's not a ghost as we've explained that never happens but it is kind of like heavily raining outside and the sound of the water dropping onto our aluminum air conditioning units that poke out of the windows is quite loud and disturbing so there's your ambiance yeah bringing it to you so my badass bitch of the week is a a woman named margaret sixel okay um, she is often referred to as being um, married to the director, George Miller. Okay. But th- I saw this just kind of like in my Twitter feed and I just was like floored by it and I just like had to shout it out. So um, she was the editor for Miller's film, 2015 film, Mad Max Fury Road. Oh. Which I don't know if you've I seen. I know that. It's an excellent film. I haven't seen it actually, which I know is terrible, but I really want to. Mm-hmm. And so he... So George Miller wanted her to edit the film. She asked him why, um, as she has never edited uh, an action film before. Miller replied, because if a guy did it, it would look like every other action movie. And she went on to win an Oscar for it. Oh my God, that's great. I love a woman like behind the scenes in film because it mm-hmm. fucking never happens as I've described before on this podcast. Well, and what really kind of like made me so like kind of like my jaw drop about it um, yeah, she won the 2016 Oscar for Best Achievement in Film Editing. Um, she also won the BAFTA for Best Editing and a bunch of other uh, awards, looks like. Is that when I saw, I saw that film in theaters. And I mean, it's just, an, it's an excellent film, but like, I'm not a huge action movie fan. I couldn't put my, like watching it, I was like, I've never seen anything like it. Just like the way that, and before so I was like, it's a cinematography, like it's just so crazy. Right. But and it's like, no, it just, what that movie needed was a woman's touch. And especially yeah. because that film, even though it's called Mad Max, like really the character that's super um, important in that film is Charlize Theron's part as um, Furiosa. And right. I just like, I just, I don't know. Yeah. I would just, I, and I think that, you know, I can't really recall because I don't think I actually even watched the Oscar ceremony, but you know, since a lot of awards actually get cut from the like live broadcast, mm-hmm. it's like you sometimes don't know these people that, right are doing like so much work behind the scenes, especially when it's a woman in a, in a man's world like Hollywood. Yeah. Um, I mean, what is in a man's world, unfortunately. Right. But that's, that's why we need diversity in filmmaking because a woman can bring, bring a perspective that a man simply cannot. Mm-hmm. And every, I mean, in all forms of diversity, people are going to bring different perspectives to the table. And that's, I think really important for making art that hasn't been done before. Like, I don't need to see another action movie edited by a man. Like I no, truly, I really truly, don't. truly don't. And I certainly don't need to see it when like, it's just going to be everything as a metaphor for like your penis. Exactly. Yeah. So we hate dicks. <sighs> just kidding. We both only love sexually. Them. <laughs> uh, really enjoy them sexually. Anyway, anyway, your, your my turn. bitch this week <laughs> is a, just a real, real classic OG. I just want to talk about Nicole Kidman nice. for a sec because let's, let's we talk. haven't given her nearly as much credit, nearly enough credit on this podcast as she deserves. I mean, we've never talked about her. Oh, yeah, okay. And I think we can both <laughs> agree that she deserves to be recognized. Yes. Um, I'm finally getting around to watching Big Little Lies. Like literally. I know, which is on, it's offensive that I, it's been this long, but I, I think I'm, I'm just like coming to the realization that she is a force mm-hmm. like that woman, the amount of titles that she's been in where she, she has just brought the most, a beautiful, incredible performance, obviously favorites like Moulin Rouge come to mind. <laughs> yeah. That wouldn't be the first I'm just one. Kidding. I think she's, yeah. It's not the best, but, and she and Keith Urban are one of my favorite celebrity couples, just mm-hmm. still going strong. So in love and her iconic clapping at the, <laughs> at the Oscars ceremony has really just like touched my soul. And I want to be like her in every way. And also girl looks so good. Like mm-hmm. she is ageless and she looks more breathtaking every day. Yeah. She, she's one of those performers who can really go to depths of, human emotion that are and but also still remain like very very subtle Mm -hmm. 
Um, it's pouring outside. Yeah, not to talk about it too much. It's just, it's, I think it's distracting to me. And this is like one of the first times we've recorded that it's been raining. I think, I think. it is the first time. I can't like remember another time. Hopefully it breaks the humidity. Anyways, enough about the weather. Back to Nicole Kidman. Um, actually, I feel so Great. She's a bad bitch. Love her. This episode Love is flawless. Um, um, we are flawless. Yeah, you're right. I guess this is probably the quickest we've gotten to the story. But Maybe. We always think, we're always like, oh my God, it's been so. Yeah? I, I so what? I can't. So what? I was, like, I was about to misquote. Um, I'm glad I didn't, but I'm still going to talk about it. I was about to misquote the iconic Hillary Duff song, Why Not? I was about to be like, so what? Take a crazy chance. And then I was like, you know when you always dress in no. yellow, but you want to dress in gold. Mm-hmm. <gasps> oh my God. It's raining. We're coming clean. Wow. Let's go back. Back to the beginning. This is full circle. I watched the Lizzie McGuire movie not two days ago. Did you really? Yeah, it was, it was. I watched it like probably a month ago. It was worse than I remembered. Well, it's not good. No. But it's it's incredible. Well, what happened? I watched Princess Diaries and then okay, how Lizzie McGuire movie back to back. You were the second person to bring up Princess Diaries to me in the past like 48 hours. How do I watch that again? It's on Netflix. Is it really? It, okay. it got added, added this month. Okay, I know what I'm doing tonight. Yes. it's uh, Okay, so we went back and watched it and I was like, holy shit, The Princess Diaries is an incredible film. <laughs> and the Lizzie McGuire movie really doesn't hold up. <laughs> well, it's just like the fact that she... It's just like on this random like eighth grade class trip. Yeah, she's literally like, supposed to be like 13. And you're like, here you go. Let's perform at the Coliseum. Yeah. And just oh, yeah. That one iconic shot of her singing at the end. And it's like her from the back. Mm-hmm. And she, it's like on like some note that is clearly just a synthesizer. Oh, they've they've <laughs> replaced half of that song with just a, another random woman. And they're like, no one's going to notice. Have you seen last, last tangent moment? And then. It's, it's, we had our Olsen twin tangent. Yep. Here's our Hillary Duff tangent. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I could yeah. talk about Hillary Duff all day. I fucking love Obviously. her. Um, unproblematic fave. Yes. Is that she... Have you seen Raise Your Voice? No. It's like probably from like 2006. I know what it is. Okay, so there's this one scene where like she's like in this like music classroom and she like stands up to like show how good she is and she, she's singing like fucking scales or something. Yeah. And she like goes up to this high note and just is clear. It's just clearly just a note on a keyboard, <laughs> and she's like, ah. and it's like that isn't a sound that, that is produced a by human. human. Yeah. And she's like, oh, gee. oh, girl. It's but like, she's still killing it. I don't even oh, yeah. care. I mean, her. She's legendary. Her music is legendary. <laughs> she's legendary. I mean, Metamorphosis is an album for a generation. <laughs> Thank you and good night. Good night. Um, all right. Let's talk about some spooky shit. Thank God. So this week we're going, we're going back about like a. Back to the beginning. <laughs> we're going back to, um, we're going back to World War II era. Okay. We're going to talk about. Well, th- this is the question. Is it the kidnapping of the Sauter children? Is it the murder of the Sauter children? Grant, is it the accidental yes, death yes, of the Sauter yes. children? I love this story. So this is one that's really... I Actually, I'd forgotten about this one, even though it's one of my favorites, and it's like kind of haunted me. And I, I can't get over it. Yeah. <gasps> okay. I found this, like... It was like... And it was a thought catalog link, and it was like the 51 most, like... It was like the 51, like, unsolved mysteries that'll keep you up at night. And I was like, okay, like, It, it truly, me. they have, though. And a lot of them were like ones we had done before. Yeah. Um, and then like this one came up and I was like already actually like halfway through like researching a different unsolved mystery. And I was like, nope, this one is so much bigger and so much more important. So without any further ado, George Sauter was born in Italy in 1895. Um, but then he immigrated to the United States 13 years later with his older brother. He eventually found work on the railroads in Pennsylvania, carrying water and other supplies to workers. And then after a few years, he took a more permanent home in Smithers, West Virginia as a driver. Great. Mm. Um, After a few more years, he started his own trucking company at first hauling dirt to construction sites and later hauling coal. Um, So he just was like a, you know, living the American dream. Yeah. Living the American dream, hauling people's dirt around, but like making good money, living a good life. Um, Good for him. Yeah, he was very successful, and he, while living in West Virginia, he met a woman named Jenny Cipriani, who was a storekeeper's daughter, and who had also come to the U.S. from Italy in her childhood, so they must have bonded over that, and they got married. So far, this sounds like the actual love story of my grandparents, yeah. just so you know. <laughs> oh my god, are you one of the missing Sauter children? <gasps> well, I, guess I mean, I like don't think parents. I was born in, like, 1905, as far as I know. I mean, 
you're looking a little old. Mm, thanks, bitch. Um, uh, the couple eventually relocated to Fayetteville, uh-huh. which had a large population of Italian immigrants. And they moved into a two-story house two miles north of the center of town. In 1923, they had the first of their 10 children. Oh, okay. these folks loved having sex. They loved the sex. <laughs> really just had a Italian. fetish for, like, pooping out babies. Um, um, who, and their, so yeah, their first child, or their oldest son was Joe. And their subsequent children were, I'm hoping this is the actual correct order, because, again, there were so many, and I had to go through by ages, but unimportant. Whatever. The other children were um, John, George Jr., Marion, Maurice, Martha, Louis, Jenny, Jenny Jr., Betty, and Sylvia. Okay. I also have to say that what I love about this story, especially also, is that so my my mom's name is Jenny, but she spells it the same way that Jenny Sauter spells, which is J E N N I E, which is very rare, oh. like a strange spelling of it. Um, so, so you're also one of the missing children. I am definitely. So that's why we get along so well, right? Um, so yeah, for the sake of the story, if I'm referring to Jenny. I'm referring to the mom, and if I'm referring to the daughter, I'll say Jenny Jr. And if you're talking about your mom... Yes, I will say... <laughs> Mrs. Jacoby. I will say an expletive. Just kidding. Love you, mom. Hope you're listening. She might be, though. She literally might be. Okay, cool. Da, 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 da. So George's business prospered, and they became one of the most respected middle-class families around. However, George was, had a lot of strong opinions about many subjects and was very vocal about them, um, which often would alienate the townsfolk. In particular, he was very opposed to then-Italian dictator Benito Mussolini. I mean. Which led to a lot of arguments with other members of the immigrant community in Fayetteville. So, I mean, basically he was just kind of like, I don't like this fucking dictator. Like, he's an asshole. Yeah. And the people were like, in the town, for some reason, were pissed. But (laughs) They're like, like, whoa, hot take. Yeah, yo. Like, it's like, I know we're about to go into, like, a full-on, like, fucking world war. Like, Uh like, there are bigger problems than, like, your opinion on Mussolini. Okay, cool. So the last of the Sauter children, Sylvia, was born in 1943. By then, their oldest son, Joe, um, was not living at home because he was overseas in the military during World War II. The following year, Mussolini was deposed and executed. However, George Sauter's criticism of the late dictator had still pissed some people off. Um, For example, in October of 1945... A visiting insurance salesman who came to the house warned George that his house, in quotes, would go up in smoke and your children are going to be destroyed. No. Quote. Oh, my God. I know. Like, f- foreshadowing? Bad Yeah, guys, down. this is not a good sign. Another visitor who, for some reason, was like, I need to go around to the back of your house, uh, did so and warned George that a, the pair of fuse boxes located in the back of the house would, in quote, cause a fire someday. Okay, I mean, what's with this unsolicited advice? Yeah. Um, From, like, gypsies. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So George was obviously like, huh? And was very confused, especially by this uh, latter remark, because he had just had the house rewired with an electric stove, um, and the electric company had said that everything about that would be safe. So he was kind of like, I don't know what you're talking about. Like, my house isn't going to burn down. Like, y'all are tripping. So besides for these strange encounters with locals in the weeks before christmas of that year the the older sons in the Sauter family had noticed a strange car parked along the main highway that had um, ran through town and that its occupants appeared to be watching the younger Sauter children as they returned home from school oh that's not good a lot of this is not good yeah a lot of like foreshadowing yeah so now we are gonna flash forward to christmas eve 1945 why does this shit always happen on Christmas Eve? Because someone clearly wanted this family to suffer. Okay, cool. Marion, who was the oldest daughter, had been working at a dime store in town, and she surprised three of her younger sisters, Martha, who was 12, Jenny, who was, sorry, Jenny Jr., who was eight, and Betty, who was five, with new toys she had um, bought for them as gifts. Oh. The younger children were so excited that they asked their mother if they could, um, Jenny Sr., if they could stay up past what would have been their usual bedtime. So at around 10 p.m., Jenny Sr. told them that they could stay up a little later as long as the two oldest boys were still awake, which are 14-year-old Maurice and 9-year-old Louis. So it's like, yeah, make sure the oldest kids who are like basically your age. Um, (laughs) This is partially because George Sr., as well as John, who was 23, and George Jr., who was 16, had spent the entire day working and were already asleep. Okay. Too many kids, but okay. Yeah. So basically, long story short, Jenny Sr. was like, y'all can stay awake, but just 
you know, your brothers are going to look after you. And so she took her daughter, Sylvia, who was two upstairs and then went to bed herself. So are all 10 kids in the house at this time? Except for the, the one that was at war, was war okay. which is, I'm pretty sure the war was over by Christmas yeah, this 1945, is a but yeah. Okay. Um, the telephone at the house rang around 1230 AM on Christmas morning. Jenny senior awoke and went downstairs to answer it. And it was a woman whose voice she did not recognize asking for a name that was not, was not hers, nor was one she was familiar with. And she could hear the sound of laughter and clinking glasses in the background. She told the caller that she had reached a wrong number, later recalling the woman had emitted a strange, weird laugh. Oh, my God. Probably a wrong number, but still weird. So she hung up and went to bed. Um, as she went up to bed, she noticed that the lights were still on in the living room and the curtains were not drawn, which were two things that the children would normally attend to when they stayed up later than their parents. So she's like, ugh, not following their rules. Okay. Um, her daughter, Marion, was asleep on the living room couch. So... Jenny Sr. assumed that the other children who had stayed up later had gone back back up to the attic where they slept. Okay. Um, so she took care of like the rest of the living room, closing the curtains, turned off the lights, and went to bed. Uh, half an hour later, at 1 a.m., Jenny was awakened again by the sound of an object hitting the house's roof with a loud bang and then a rolling sound. Oh, Santa. Um, after <laughs> And this is the story of Father Christmas. <laughs> Um, after hearing nothing further, she went back to sleep. Again, another half an hour went by. This time she woke up smelling smoke. Oh. When she got up again, she found that the room that George used for his office was on fire. Um, and so she woke him up, and he in turn woke up the, the his older sons. Both parents and four of their children, Marion, Sylvia, John, and George Jr., escaped the house. So basically every, all the children that were on the lower levels of the house, so not the ones in the attic. They didn't go up to the attic to get them? So they, they frantically yelled to Martha, Maurice, Louis, Jenny Jr., and Betty upstairs, but heard no response, and they could not get up there because the stairway itself was already in flames. Oh, no. Um, and efforts to find and rescue the remaining children proved to be extremely complicated. The phone in the house did not work. So even though it had it, worked earlier that night? It worked one hour previous. Oh, my God. So Marianne ran to a neighbor's to call the fire department. Also, a driver on nearby road had seen the flames and went to a nearby tavern to call the police. However, both attempts were initially unsuccessful, either because they could not reach the operator, because this is back in the day you need to reach an operator, or because the phones were not working. Ugh. So like three... Okay, come yeah, on. Yeah, it's... I don't... Yeah, it's strange. But eventually someone was able to get to... Um, to a phone, and someone was able to call the fire department. So the fire department was notified. In the meantime, George and his sons intended to use a ladder that they had in their yard to get up to the attic to rescue their children, but it was not in its usual resting spot against the house and could not be found anywhere nearby. No, no, no. These people, mm. Yeah. Okay. There was also a water barrel in the backyard that could have been used to extinguish the fire, but it was frozen solid. Great. George then tried to pull both of his trucks that he used in his business up to the house to use them to climb, climb into the attic window, but neither of them would start despite having worked perfectly during the previous day. All right. So <laughs> it's, I think it's, it's pretty clear someone had it out for this poor family. Yeah. So basically they, they did everything they could and alas to no avail. Um, so the fire department who was low on manpower due to the war so also apparently had to like rely on um, like each like so you'd, you'd call the firehouse but then whoever was at the firehouse would have to call all the other firefighters oh God, yeah. to come in so they didn't respond to the house that was literally on fire until later in the morning no um, they were like listen we're opening presents we'll yeah like later. Uh, like I know your entire family is trapped inside um, but I'm drinking eggnog yeah like we we busy um, Chief F.J. Morris said the next day that um, the already slow response was further delayed because he was actually unable to drive the fire truck as chief, which makes sense. Oh, um, okay. So he had to wait until someone who was authorized to drive could sure. yeah, 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 show yeah. up. Definitely. Um, frustrated and devastated, the six surviving solder folk <laughs> who had escaped had no choice but to helplessly wash, watch as their house burned down and collapsed over the next 45 minutes. Oh my God. They couldn't have like gotten a ladder from a neighbor or like, I, I, th I think that they were pretty far away from other, I don't yeah. really know. Yeah. 
Um, so naturally they assumed that the other five children had all been killed in the fire. Oh my God. So by the time the firefighters eventually arrived, the house was basically in ashes. There was nothing remaining left of the house except, um, that's devastating. The, um, the like foundation of the basement. Yeah. Uh, by 10 AM, uh, chief Morris told the Sodders that they had not found any bones in the rubble, which would normally be expected if the other children had been in the house as it was burning. Yeah. Um, this is the detail that like always gets me right. But at the same time, it has been noted by modern fire professionals who've looked back at the case that the search was very hasty at best and they did not really do a thorough investigation. I think they were oh, like, really? Oh, your children were in the house. The house is gone. Guess the kids are gone too. Oh, so regardless, even though I'm finding no evidence of the children in the fire or their remains, that is the Ch- chief Morris believed that the children who had been unaccounted for had died in the fire, um, suggesting that the fire had been hot enough to burn their bodies completely. Okay. The chief then told George Sauter to leave the st- site undisturbed so that the state's fire marshal could come conduct a more thorough investigation. However, after four days, he and his wife could not bear the sight of the um, burned down house anymore. So he bulldozed five feet of dirt over the site with the intention of converting it to a memorial garden for his children. Oh my God. This is so sad. I know. But also like, uh, yeah, but also like that was all the evidence. I know. <laughs> so it was the, was it the five youngest children? No, it's, um, it's kind of like the five middle children. So it wasn't, the, it wasn't the, the baby old. got out. The baby okay. got out. So the baby was, I think with the mom yeah. and then the oldest children, I think it was like the oldest two besides the son that was away at war i think it was like the oldest two sons the oldest daughter and the baby okay and the other five it's unclear okay uh the local coroner produced an inquest the next day and concluded that the fire had been caused by was an accident that was caused by faulty wiring right as everyone said Mm -hmm. however one so i guess he like presents this to like a jury for like the findings. And one of the men who was on the jury was one of the visitors to the house who had threatened George that his house would would burn down and his children would be destroyed. Okay. What the fuck? Yeah. So there is problematic and um, suspicious activity at every turn of this story. Okay. Um, Death certificates for the five children were issued on December 30th of the same year. Um, George and Jenny Sr. were too grief-stricken to attend the funeral on the January 2nd, 1946, although their surviving children did. Not long afterward, as they tried to move on with their lives, the Sodders started to question all the official findings about the fire. They wondered why, if it had been caused by an electrical problem in the house for the fire to start, why the family's Christmas lights had remained on throughout the fire's early stages, when the power should have gone out if it was an electrical problem. Yeah. Um, then they eventually found the missing ladder that originally was supposed to be at the side of the house on the night of the fire, but they found it at the bottom of an embankment 75 feet away from the house. Yeah. I mean, yeah. How did it get there? Mm -hmm. Furthermore, a telephone repairman told the Sodders that the house's phone line had not actually been burned through in the fire as they initially thought, but had been cut by someone who was willing and able to climb a 14 feet pole and reach two feet away from it to like cut the cable. So it was like 14 feet high, two feet away. Snip. Who are you? Like, who do you fucking think you are that you're like, yeah, I'm Mm -hmm. just going to destroy this family's life. Seriously. Okay. They eventually found a man who neighbors had witnessed stealing a block and tackle from the property around the time of the fire had started and he was arrested and he admitted to the theft and claimed that he had been the one who had cut the phone line thinking it was a power line, but denied have anything to do with the fire. (laughs) He was like, oh, no, I was just trying to cut a different power line. Yeah, That's I was just why like, I climbed 14 feet up a pole. Yeah, I just was trying to take out your power, but not your phone. Sure. But I had nothing to do with right, right. the fact that, yeah. Okay. All your children are dead. Or are they? So, but also with time and lack of evidence, there's no actually record identifying him. Um, and so there's no way to trace why he would want to be involved um, in this. So it's kind of a... There are a lot of dead ends in the story. I apologize. Yeah. Um, there wasn't a whole lot, I think, of people doing thorough investigation to start with. So, right. Um, uh, Jenny Sauter had a lot of trouble accepting the Chief Morris's belief that all the trace of the children's bodies had burned completely in the fire, particularly because many of the household appliances had been found still recognizable in the ash, along with fragments of the, of the tin roof. 
Yeah. To test this, she compiled some animal bones and um, lit them on fire to see if any of them would burn completely, and none of them ever did. Yeah, and I mean, that makes sense. I don't think that's a thing. In fact, an employee of the local crematorium she contacted told her that human bones remain even after bodies are burned at 2,000 degrees Fahrenheit for over two hours, which is far longer and far hotter than the house could ever have been on fire. Yeah, that's bullshit. Yeah, so... Um, in regards to the trucks um, owned by the Sodders, the fact that they f- failed to start was also considered. George Sodder believed that they had been tampered with, perhaps by the same man who had stolen the block the block and tackle and cut the phone line. Um, however, one of his one of George Sodder's son-in-laws told the Charleston Gazette Mail in 2013 that he had come to believe that the Sodder that George Sodder and his sons might have, in their haste um, to get the the trucks to start, had flooded the engines. Uh-huh. Which I believe for one, but two. Yeah. Like, mm. Also, like, is it possible that the fire department was just, like, taking their sweet time with things and not actually... Like, it seemed, that yes. seems like such a ridiculous yes. amount of time to get to a burning house full of children. You Yeah, you would think. Okay. There was also evidence that supported the Sodder's belief that the fire had not been started by the electrical system and was, in fact, set deliberately. Duh. Well, it's also so weird that, like, specifically the stairs up to the attic where mm-hmm. the children would be is on fire. But, like, the, it's like, it seems like there's fire in, like, specific parts of the house. Right. Well, I mean, fire travels up. Yeah. Yeah. But I don't, I mean, I'm not sure the exact layout of the house. I know that the fire was first noticed in George's office, but that the stairs were also on fire. But then also, because remember, there was the sound of, um. Yeah something hitting the roof and actually a a bus driver that had passed through Fayetteville late on Christmas Eve said that he had seen some people throwing balls of fire at the house. Oh, okay. (laughs) So, um, and then a few months after the incident, when the snow had melted, Sylvia, who was the baby found a small, hard, dark green rubber ball like object in the brush nearby. Um, George, after looking at it, said it looked sort of like a pineapple bomb, hand grenade, or some other sort of incendiary device that was used in combat. Oh, my God. Keep in mind, we're at war. Yeah. Um, The family later claimed that contrary to the fire marshal's conclusion, the fire had started on the roof, although by this point, of course, there was no way to prove it. Okay. (sighs) So other witnesses shortly after the event claimed to have seen the children themselves. So now we're getting into the the good shit. Um, and then, in fact, some people started to believe that the children had survived the fire and had not died. One woman who had been watching the fire from the road said she had seen some of them peering out of a passing car while the house was burning. Another woman at a rest stop between Fayetteville and Charleston said she had served them breakfast the next morning and noted that the presence of a car with a Florida license plate in the rest stop's parking lot as well. But none of these leads panned out. Yeah. Based on these sort of kind of rumors, the Sodders began to believe that maybe in fact their children had not died with all this evidence. Um, it's, it's so interesting to me, just a little side note that through all of this, they're never like, we want justice. Like we want to find these people who did this. Like they're just like, we want to find our kids. Right. Like they don't so seem to sad. care that their house was burned down. They don't seem to care that they were like attacked or like right. for what reason they're just like, where are our children? Yeah. Well, the crazy thing is like, I don't know if you're going to go into this more, but what the fuck is the motivation mm-hmm. behind this? Just the fact that he'd like made comments about Mussolini, like maybe it has something to do with the Italian mob. I don't know, but it seems so extreme mm-hmm. for someone who seems like an all around like good person who just was kind of opinionated because if that's criteria for burning a house down, we are in trouble. And especially like, I don't think that disliking Mussolini is that big, like controversial right. of a, an opinion. And right. it's not like they were in Italy and he was like bad-mouthing their right. dictator. He was in America. Like. Right, right, Anyways. So the Sodders were very suspicious that in fact their children were still alive. So they hired a private investigator named C.C. Tinsley. It's a fun <laughs> that's, little. Um, that's a Harry Potter character. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, in his investigations, he learned of rumors around Fayetteville that despite his report to the Sodders that no remains had been found in the ashes, Chief Morris had found a heart. What? Which he had later packed into a metal box and secretly buried it. No. Chief Morris, what are you doing? Mm-hmm. So George Sodder and Tinsley went to the chief and confronted him with this news. He agreed to show the two where he had buried it and they dug it up. They, they found it? Mm-hmm. 
Uh, Yeah, well, here's where shit gets weird. So they took what they found inside to a local funeral director, who after examining it told him that it was not a human heart, but was in fact beef liver. Okay. And very fresh beef liver at that, that had never been exposed to fire. Uh, Okay. Um, I don't think these kids were in that house. I don't think so either. Okay. Um, And people, no one is really clear why the chief would have put a fake like put beef liver in a box and buried it and been like, it's your children. Great question. Um, but some people believe that it was just like planted evidence to, for people to believe that. Um, well, someone the wanted them to believe that yes. the children were dead. Um, so through all this information, George Sauter became more and more convinced that this evidence, including various sightings of the missing children meant that they were indeed still alive. Um, in one instance, after seeing a girl in a magazine in a, um, in a magazine picture of young ballet dancers in New York City who looked like one of his missing daughters, Betty, he drove all the way to the girl's school where his repeated demands to see the girl himself were refused. Oh, my God. Which, like, I, I, I get it. Like, yeah. Well. But this this is the part of the story that makes me so sad that it's just, like, these parents never fucking gave up. And mm-hmm. it's it's so tragic. Seriously. So, in August of 1949, so flash forward four years... George was able to persuade Oscar Hunter, a Washington, D.C. pathologist, to supervise a new excavation of the dirt at the site of the house. In doing so, they found a dictionary that belonged to the children and some coins, as well as several several small bone fragments that were determined to be human vertebrae. Oh. So these were sent to a specialist at the Smithsonian Institution, and they they were indeed confirmed to be a lumbar vertebrae, all from the same person. However the specialist determined that the, the bone fragments showed that whoever they belonged to would likely have been between the ages of 16 and 22. Mm. Thus, given this age range, it's not likely that these bones were from the five missing children since the oldest, Maurice, had been 14 at the time. Wow. Um, the specialist, um, whose name is Marshall T. Newman, also added that the bones showed no sign of exposure to fire. Um, so someone just, like, keeps fucking with them. They probably, like, put them there later. Mm-hmm. Nope. It was kind of basically concluded that someone had planted those bones later because they hadn't been found during the first excavation. And yeah. like, if why would it be just bone fragments from a vertebrae and nothing else? Yeah. And people kind of in this second excavation, furthermore, um, kind of confirmed that at the rate of the heat of the fire and how long it burned, there should have been full skeletons left of the children. Definitely. Not just bone fragments. Right. And the uh, private investigator Tinsley supposed that they had come from by a near nearby cemetery, but no one could thoroughly conclude how or when or why they had been moved to the side of the fire. Amazing. Uh, but it's Everything's not over. going so well. I know. They're not going to get better. Great. Uh, so basically, George Sauter really just never gave up, and he kept trying to make petitions to the West Virginia legislature and to the FBI to keep this case open and to continue to investigate what had happened to his children. Some of his um, his requests were humored, such as by the FDI, uh, FDI, FBI, um, since they felt like it was could be a potential interstate kidnapping, so they were interested, but they dropped it after two years because there were just no leads. Yeah. The slaughter still did not give up hope. They began printing flyers with pictures of the children, offering a $5,000 reward. And in 1952, seven years after the fire, they put up a billboard at the side of the house, which eventually became kind of like a landmark for passing traffic. And was kind of like, it was like big billboard with like all the, the faces of the children and asking for a reward and for, for help. Oh my gosh. Um, as they continued to kind of publicize their efforts to try and find their children, more reports began rolling in of sightings of the children, even though many, many, or many years had passed. Ida Crutchfield, who was a woman who ran a hotel in Charleston, claimed to have seen the children approximately a week after the fire. She said, I do not remember the exact date. The children had come in around midnight with two men and two women, all of whom appeared to be of Italian extraction, was her quotes. I don't know what that means. Italian descent, I guess. When she attempted to speak with the children, one of the men looked at me in a hostile manner. He turned around and began talking rapidly in Italian. Immediately, the whole party stopped talking to me. She recalled that they left the hotel early the next morning. Investigators today, however, do not 
consider her story to be that credible as she had only seen photos of the children two years after the fire, five years before she came forward. George Sutter continued to follow up leads in person, usually traveling to the areas where the tips came from. Um, A woman in St. Louis claimed that Martha was being held there in a convent. A bar patron in Texas claimed to have overheard two people making incriminating statements about the fire that had happened. But none of them, none of these leads proved significant. Uh, When George heard that a relative of Jenny's in Florida had children that looked similar to his, the relative had to prove that the children were his own before George was satisfied. (laughs) So he just really was like, he would follow any lead. Yeah, it's um, so sad. We've talked about this like with other cases, but it's like, you, when you're in that situation, you just feel like you have to, yeah, you have to follow up on everything. If that means driving to the other side of the country, like you don't mm-hmm. fucking care. Exactly. Oh, that's so sad. Um, in 1967, so now we're 22 years after the fire, George Sauter went to Houston to investigate another tip. A woman there had written to the family saying that Louis Sauter had revealed his true identity to her one night after having too much to drink. She believed that he and Maurice were both living in Texas somewhere. Oh my but, God. Mm. That's crazy. Both Sauter and his son-in-law, Grover Paxton, which is an amazing name, weren't able to speak with her. Um, police were then able to help them find the two men who she had indicated, but they denied being the missing sons. And Paxton, the son-in-law, said that years later, that doubts about his denial, about the, the kid's denial being like, I'm not actually the your son, um, lingered in George's mind for the rest of his life. Oh. But probably the most credible tip and strangest one was a letter came to the Sauter's home that Jenny found that was postmarked in Central City, Kentucky with no return address. Inside was a picture of a young man around 30 with features strongly resembling Lewis's, who had, would have been in his 30s at this time if he had survived. On the back of the letter, or I'm sorry, on the back of the photo was written, Lewis Sauter, I love brother Frankie, little boys. I think it says, it's like, L-L-I-L, or it's I-L. You oh, know how like an, yeah. the lowercase L also looks like mm. an I. Something boys, and then A90132 or 35. What? Strange. <laughs> um, they hired another private detective to go to Central City, Kentucky, to look into this strange piece of evidence, but he never reported back to the Sodders, and they were never able to locate him again. Oh, my God. Um. However, the picture gave them a lot of hope. George Sauter admitted to the Charleston Gazette um, late the next year that the lack of information had been like hitting a rock wall. We can't go any further. However, he nevertheless vowed to continue. Um, but he said, time is running out for us. Uh, we only want to know. If they, if they did die in the fire, we want to be convinced. Otherwise, we want to know what happened to them. I'm crying. Um, uh, yeah. George. So, unfortunately, George Sauter died in 1969. No. Jenny and her surviving children, except John, who never talked about the night of the fire, except to say that the family should accept it and get on with their lives. John was the one away at war. Yeah. Um, the rest of them continued to seek answers for what happened to their missing siblings and children. After George's death, Jenny stayed in the family home. I'm assuming they had a, got a second home. Putting up fencing around and adding additional rooms. For the rest of her life, she wore black and mourning, and often tended the garden at the site of the former home. Oh, my God. Um, after her death in 1989, the family finally took the billboard that was on the property down. Um, the surviving Sauter children, joined by their own children, continued to publicize the case and investigate leads. Uh, they, along with other Fayetteville residents, have theorized that the Sicilian Mafia was trying to extort money from George Sauter, and the children may have been taken by someone who knew about the planned arson and said that they would be safe if they left the house um, and that they were possibly even taken back to Italy. Oh. Um, if the children had indeed survived all those years and were aware that their parents and siblings had survived too, um, the family believes that they may have avoided contact in order to keep them from harm. Oh. Which is like, now we're getting into like full-on conspiracy theory. But, yeah. Um, I mean. Could be. It's not crazy. Um, as of 2015, Sylvia Sauter Paxton the youngest in the family is the only one still alive of the surviving children who were in the house of the night on the night of the fire, which she says is actually her earliest memory. Um, I was the last one of the kids to leave home, she recalled to the Charleston Gazette in 2013. She and her father often stayed up late talking about what might have happened. I experienced their grief for a long time, she said. She still believes that her siblings survived the night and, uh, and quietly assists with efforts to find them and publicize the case. Uh, Sylvia's daughter in 2006 said she promised my grandparents she wouldn't let the story die. 
that she would do everything she could to find them. And on that note. <laughs> oh, that's just the worst. I know. It's it's so sad because, you know, there there are no answers. And it's not even like there's even the beginning of no. answers. It's all just like. <sighs> we have to keep the story alive, I guess. But I don't know. That's so terrible. I mean, I what sucks is I feel like in a lot of ways, the, the first half of it feels like pretty cut and dry. Like yeah. he pissed like George Sauter, like pissed off some people in the community. They decided to take revenge. And so they burned his house down. But then the, yeah, I guess the question is like, where, where did the children go? Cause I mean, there's no way I, I really think there's no way they just died in that fire. Right. Um, but it's like, did someone take them out because they knew it was going to happen and they wanted to help them or did someone take them out? And then like, I, well, I think that they were kidnapped before the fire started. You think they were kidnapped by the same people who were going to start the fire? I don't know. Well, because, okay, so I guess if, because remember, the Jenny Sauter, the mom, had woken up and she was like, oh, like the lights are still on, the curtains are still open. So like someone, like, like someone could have come into the house. Yeah. But obviously there had to be enough people to steal, kidnap five children. Right. The oldest one who was 14. Right. Um, yeah, so I guess like that one theory is that the mafia got involved and they were like, they knew the house was going to get burned down. So they kidnapped the children to keep them safe or I don't, I couldn't really fall. That it's so weird. It's very strange. It's and also it's, like, and only some of the kids, like why those kids was just because they were in the attic or like, I think maybe because they were the easiest. I mean, or maybe they, maybe they used that ladder. They climbed up yeah. and took them and then tossed the ladder mm-hmm. aside and, mm-hmm. um, cut the power line and, or sorry, cut the phone line and, that's so crazy. It's super crazy. Yes, yeah, I think it's one of those stories that every time you're like, oh, what about this? And then it's like, well, that doesn't make sense because of this, but. Yeah. Um, I'll just never get over George, the dad, just yeah. like spent the rest of his life looking. Yeah, I mean, it seems like they all kind yeah. of have, except for the one that wasn't there who's like, we got to move on. Yeah. I mean, um, I get it, but. Well, thank you so much welcome. for that lovely brightens up moment. Do we, I guess we're going to have our bits, bitch session. Yeah. I can't say, I can never say it. You go first. Okay. Um, so my complaint this week, I really don't mean to sound like elitist or obnoxious. Yes. Um, <laughs> as we've clearly described on this podcast, we most of the time use public transportation, but living in New York city, I do sometimes take like a yellow cap somewhere just because it's easier or quicker or I have a lot of things to carry or whatever. Um, But just recently I've had a few experiences that fucking pissed me off. One happened today, which is why I need to complain about this. But on more than one occasion now, I've been in a cab where I told them where I wanted to go. Mm -hmm. Um, Clearly in Brooklyn, gave them the cross streets. And instead they went to you know, the same name of the street, but in Manhattan, which is like completely the opposite direction of where I want to go. Oh my God. And it happened today. And I noticed the driver was like kind of going the wrong way, but I was like, maybe he's just taking another, like a weird route or whatever. And then finally got to a point where I was like, no, he's definitely not going towards Brooklyn. And I was like, um, so we're, we're going to Brooklyn. Right. And he was like, Oh, Brooklyn. Like that's not, you didn't say that. And I was like, no, like I very clearly did. And at that point is when maybe you would think they'd be like, oh my gosh, I'm so sorry. Like I'll start the meter over. Mm-hmm. No, no. He just let it keep running. It was like, we'd already traveled for like 20 minutes, oh $20 God. worth of time. He just let the meter keep running. When we got here, he didn't, he didn't take any money off for the fact that he had gone completely in the wrong direction. And this is, this is not the first time that it's happened to me and they have not offered to take any money off of the toll. So it's like, it's not my fucking fault. Like, I'm sorry if you misunderstood me, but like, it's not, that's not my fault. And if you weren't sure, like you could have asked, like it's, it just pisses me off so much. And it's also, there have been many times where I've gotten into a cab where I've told them where I wanted to go and they're like, okay, how should I, how should I get there? And it's like, um, I don't really know, which is why I'm taking a cab. (laughs) And then it's kind of like on you to, to try to figure out like the fastest, cheapest way to get there. Otherwise they're just going to like, if they know that you don't know where you're going, they're kind of going to take the longest route that they can because they just want to get as much money out of you as as they can, which I totally get. Like, I'm sure it's an incredibly hard and difficult and frustrating job. And that doesn't probably make them a lot of money, but it's just, 
I was in the I was in that fucking cab for like an hour and it shouldn't have taken that long and we were oh we God. got stuck in so much traffic trying to cross back across the city and I was just like so I was just so pissed and I needed to to air my grievances here as that, usual. That would really really fucking piss me off. Yeah. I'm not going to lie. Yeah, that sucks. Anyway. What um, about you? My children didn't die in a fire, so I'm yeah. really doing fine. Yeah. But uh mine's pretty petty, which is that so this is partially I'm acknowledged kind of comes from just like like my mom's English teacher like so I I've had these kind of grammar rules ingrained in me Mm -hmm. it's not sorry it's not even grammar it's um it's just a matter of being an intelligent person which is knowing the difference between your theirs Mm -hmm. your twos and your yours oh my god Yes, 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 yes. The You're number speaking of, my language. The number of times, especially on social media, where I see someone like is trying to say like you are, but they do like the your, like as in mine or yours, or like it's like, oh, like that is too much, but it's T O. Yeah. Or just it's just like I, I, I understand that it's like I mean it, it happens sometimes, like like I get typos happen. Yeah. But at the same time it's like Dumb. Yeah, and I like, and that's not even being. That's not even being like, oh my god, like, did you not go to college or what? Oh it's no, like, god, of course, it's not. like, no, this is like the basest level. This is like of, middle school. Yeah, and no disrespect for someone who doesn't have beyond a middle school education. It's more that just like, at a certain point, you just gotta. It just it it just grinds my gears. I very much agree, especially because it's it's always people who are like our age or older where I'm like, yeah. or not even not even like social media is one thing, but I've had it happen so many times in like professional email oh, settings bye. where I'm like, did you just, just read it once? Like, mm-hmm. do you know, like, cause I really do think, you know, the difference you're just, maybe you're in a rush or whatever it is, but you just come off as so unprofessional. And I like, I like I there I've, I've been in situations before where I was like hiring an intern or like whatever. And was getting all these applications and emails from people. And as soon as there was like a misplaced, your bye. Bye. Sorry. There's other people in line. Yeah. So yeah, there's anyway, (laughs) um, that's, that's my complaint. It's just like, I love it. Figures on that note. Uh, Yeah. On that note, that's what you came for, the bitchiness and mm-hmm. the horror. So rate, review, and subscribe, I guess. If you want to um, complain to us, go ahead and... Yeah, join us. join in our complaining and yeah. our spookiness. And um, yeah, you can find us on Instagram and Twitter at RWF Podcast. And... Um, that's all. Yeah, I think Find that's the all. solder kids. Yeah. If oh if you're a solder <laughs> descendant of a solder child listening to this podcast, like please let us know yeah, just where they us, ended up. You know, give yeah. us a like. Yeah. Thanks. Bye, Bye bitches. bitches.